For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access to your populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. Homo erectus left a hand axe carved from a hippo bone in a 1.4 million year old layer of mud. This was recently excavated in Ethiopia by Tohoku University. A hand axe is a common tool that required minimal shaping but aided in a variety of tasks associated with what we would call dressing and butchering game. Most hand axes are about the size of your hand, no surprise there. One edge is for cutting, and one edge is for holding or holding against the back of your palm. The cutting edge has alternating flakes taken out of it that leave a sharp edge, and they are made from stone. So this one, made from bone, is a special find. In fact, this is only the second bone hand axe ever found. Of course, this find leads archaeologists to the fun question of why. Why make a tool out of a hippo bone when a more durable stone alternative was so widely available? 1.4 million years ago, a hand axe maker decided to produce an alternative to that common household item, the stone hand axe. This particular Homo erectus could have been an innovator, could have thought bone was more pretty, could have been the first Ron Popeil for all we know. Tired of dull stone hand axes? The hippo bone omatic slices through scavenged or freshly killed meats as easily as, you know, I mean, you get it. Plus, a risk-free 90-day money-back guarantee for just $10. I bring this up because if you look at the wide, wide, wide world and variety of butchering tools and implements in the world today, 
the shapes, sizes, variations, and material options. To, you know, it's just fun to think that people, hominids, have been thinking of different ways of doing this or that, uh, maybe for a better product or maybe just to be different for over 1.4 million years. Sometimes necessity is the mother of invention, and sometimes folks just want to be different. This week, we've got rabbits, condors, fish ethics, elk, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. I am recording this episode from Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, where we are currently working on a brand new season of DOS Boat, or in this case, Dose Boat. If you've not seen the original season, it is our YouTube-based fishing series, so check it out. The main thread is taking an old boat and dressing it up as we move from fishery to fishery, making modifications and learning about new species, tactics, techniques, and issues. Here in Detroit Lakes, we stopped at Lakeside, True Value, to get geared up. The folks at Lakeside helped us out with a bunch of odds and ends, including uh, letting us rip the top off an old cabinet, taking an old Lakeside rug that uh, Miles Nolte and I used to turn into a casting deck on the new boat. This customer service and general hospitality is to be expected, as Lakeside True Value is an official dealer of steel power equipment. I even noticed that they have an MSA 140 battery-powered saw in their rental fleet uh, in case you want to try out a powerful, clean, lightweight battery-powered saw. The uh, topic we are checking out or fishing for is the Big Mouth Buffalo, which, if you recall from a much earlier episode, is an indigenous and large sucker. The Big Mouth Buffalo is often confused with the common carp or in other waterways invasive carp and is thusly targeted by bow fishers, shot and thrown away. However, we recently learned, and you may have heard this here on the Week in Review, that the Big Mouth Buffalo has a lot more going for it than many, including myself, had initially thought. This fish is not only the largest member of the sucker family that can weigh in routinely beyond 60 pounds, it tastes great. It is incredibly picky, but sips flies off the surface and puts up an incredible fight on fly or conventional tackle. It is our oldest known fish. These big mouth buffalo are capable of living. Well, I mean, to be honest, we don't know how old these fish can get, but we do know there are many, many fish that are swimming around right now at over 112 years of age. These fish could hold the secret to aging with grace. As I recently, as in just a couple hours ago, learned that even though they age, they don't show signs of muscle deterioration like other animals, including us do. Currently, there is no limit in the amount of these centarian fish you can kill, and the folks that are studying them, and consequently love the dang things, only ask that if you are out shooting carp, know what you're shooting at. Identify your target. Before you let that arrow go, make sure it's a carp and not a big mouth buffalo. There's lots more on this topic to tell you, but I'll save it for another episode. You know, I don't think it's too much to ask, just as an aside, that you identify your target. The state's not helping you out here, bow fishers. Their bare minimum in the regulations suggests the state doesn't even care about these things. All the stuff I've learned about them, they're incredibly cool. But you, as an uh, arrow-flinging hunter of sorts, 
identifying your target should be ingrained in you. And a fish sitting there is nowhere near as hard as, let's say, a flock of mallards flying by at 25 miles an hour. Or, you know, surf scoters or a golden eye flying in at like 50 miles an hour. So picking one from the other isn't that big of a deal. Again, you aren't required to keep these things, but they taste great. So if you do screw up and shoot one of these things, take it home and eat it. Jumping over to the small game desk. That's a pun, as this one is about rabbits. And what's up, dog? Or more specifically, a highly contagious virus that's killing a bunch of rabbits. Small game hunters take note. We've covered this one briefly before, so I'll prime you up before we get going. The name of the illness is Rabbit Hemorrhagic Disease Virus Type 2, or RHDV2. And it's so deadly that folks are calling it rabbit Ebola, though it actually has nothing to do with Ebola. It's just really bad. Here's what we know. The virus is a new souped-up version of rabbit hemorrhagic disease, or RHD. That virus was first identified in China in 1984. What's interesting and unnerving about RHD is that rabbits might exhibit absolutely no symptoms. They just keel over and die. The virus spreads from rabbit to rabbit and through passive transfer. Passive transfer would be like when a rabbit encounters the virus just in nature living on something else. Once in a rabbit, the virus causes a general infection of the organs. A rabbit will typically bleed from the nose and mouth immediately after death. Other than this telltale sign, a rabbit carcass looks perfectly unharmed. The U.S. had an RHD outbreak back in 2000 but it was a minor issue compared to the impact RHD had on Asian rabbit populations. In China alone, the virus is believed to have killed in the ballpark of 140 million rabbits. RHD is a super disease of sorts. A recent New York Times article notes that the virus can live on dry cloth with no living host of any sort for over three months. That's scary stuff. The virus can live in a dead rabbit for even longer than that. Imagine if COVID survived for three months on surfaces. No, don't like that. There'd be no mitigating it. The RHD's long life helps explain why it's so contagious among rabbits. The virus is also impervious to freezing, so it doesn't go away in winter. As a result, the mortality rate can be as high as 100%. Now, the new version of RHD seems even worse than the original. As I mentioned, it's RHDV2, as in version 2. According to the USDA, the new virus first appeared in New York City sometime in February, so just a few months ago. Scientists are pretty darn concerned, and for good reason. What happened is that, back in February, about 11 domestic rabbits at a Manhattan animal hospital suddenly expired. No one really knew why, which was weird. But the following months got, you know, a little weirder. In March, RHDV2 somehow managed to do something crazy. It jumped to wild rabbits here in the U.S. Wild rabbits and hares in New Mexico started dying first. Not long after, a group of 30 dead rabbits was reportedly found near Fort Bliss, Texas. Then the same thing happened in other states, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, Washington. By early this month, the virus had reached California, where it still seems to be spreading. I'll pump the brakes real quick. Uh, You need to understand something, so stick with me. 
Most domesticated pet rabbits are European rabbits. That's the common name for the species, or Rictalagus cuniculus. When you buy your kid a little bunny at the feed store, that's most likely what you're getting, a European rabbit. Wild cottontails and jackrabbits, like the sort you hunt, are totally different species than these domestic rabbits. Jackrabbits are actually hares, which are not at all like rabbits. Hares change their fur color depending on the season. Rabbits don't. Hares are solitary and live above ground, whereas most rabbits hang out in groups and live in burrows. Anyway, the important thing to know is that wild rabbits and hares are not the same thing as domestic rabbits. And because of that, wild rabbits and hares were unaffected by the original RHD rabbit virus. It's a really big deal that the new virus, RHDV2, jumped species, and at this point, it's still hard to know what the implications might be. RHDV2 actually has a lower mortality rate than RHD, but that's not a good thing, because it means more live rabbits are hopping around with it, infecting other rabbits, and more rabbits in total may die. Here's another wrinkle. There's a vaccine for RHD and for RHDV2 but neither are available in the United States, you know, for a bunch of bureaucratic reasons. And also, how are you going to distribute a vaccine to a bunch of wild rabbits? Thousands of rabbits and hares have died so far. Right now, it looks as though all we can do is hope that the U.S. doesn't see the same sort of death numbers that China did with the original RHD outbreak. Millions of dead rabbits. If you're a big game hunter, the freezer is full of red meat, and those little white cottontail loins get to be pretty darn special. If you happen across any dead rabbits that are suspiciously good-looking, maybe with a little blood on their mouths or noses, it would be a great idea to contact your state's Fish and Game or Department of Natural Resources. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 
we've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Here in the western states, we've got elk all over the place. The same used to be true in the Appalachian states, especially in the eastern part of Kentucky. As you may or may not recall from your high school history class, Daniel Boone was one of the first settlers to blaze a trail through the Cumberland Gap and settle Kentucky. That was back in the 1760s. Well, on his famous expedition, he saw scores of elk just grazing and hanging out in bluegrass meadows, along with buffalo and bear, by the way. Once more settlers moved in, market hunting, habitat destruction, and non-existent management practices quickly threatened the elk. A similar situation played out throughout much of the country with a bunch of different species, grizzlies, buffalo, mountain lions. Oh my! By the time John James Audubon, you know, the animal painter, founder of the Audubon Society, visited Kentucky in 1810, elk had been largely wiped out. Within 30 years, they would be totally gone. Of course, this all happened back in the days before Congress passed all our great conservation laws, like the Lacey Act in 1900 and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918, and long before the North American model of wildlife conservation was established. Anyway, there's good news today. Elk are on the rise once again in Kentucky. The New York Times recently published an article about how elk have not only rebounded, but are also helping bring economic life to Kentucky, and sportsmen have played a huge part in the whole thing. Another great conservation success story from Conservation Failure. Here's the gist. In 1997, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, or RMEF, offered to fund a multi-million dollar plan to airlift 1,500 elk and begin to restore Kentucky's native herd. The catch was that farmers in western Kentucky weren't exactly into the whole idea. Why would you not want elk back? Well, trying making a living off of feeding animals and uh, all of a sudden having to feed a bunch of animals that you didn't exactly write into the family business plan. Well, there was farmer opposition, so they had to find a safe place for the elk. Back before this time, in the heyday of Cola, Kentucky, coal companies would just blast the top off of mountains. They would then take all the rubble and debris from blowing these mountains up and just fill up the nearby valley. This created a patchwork of kind of flat and hilly land. In the 1990s, the Kentucky coal industry basically nosedived and a bunch of mining areas were abandoned. Now, hilltop removal or mountaintop removal is not a good idea. But, in this case, it did turn Kentucky into a perfectly good place to release a bunch of elk. 
that's because elk really like that mix of mountainous terrain and plateaus, whether they're artificial or not. Plus, most of Kentucky's abandoned coal mines were in the eastern part of the state and away from the aforementioned miners. So that's where the elk went. This is an interesting aside. If you ever find yourself speaking publicly about the effects of open pit mines, or in this case, uh, hilltop mining techniques and their effects on wildlife, these coal country elk examples always come up as this like, boy, if mining's bad, and to be clear, not all mining's bad. It can be done responsibly. It's just, you know, expensive. But anyway, the argument's like, uh, boy, if mining's bad, you got to tell all these elk on these uh, Kentucky mines to get out. And the argument just like conveniently leaves out the fact that in order to have this conservation success, these areas of the country had to be completely elk-less, as in zero, for more than 200 years. Imagine drawing that elk tag and having to wait 200 years. Nevertheless, this plan succeeded. Fast forward 23 years from the original 1,500 elk release, and Kentucky is now home to 13,000 elk. That's 11,500 more elk than two decades ago. The animals are so abundant that this season, Kentucky will have 600 elk hunting tags up for grabs. Earlier, I mentioned economic life in Kentucky. By the state's estimate, elk sightseeing tours and elk hunting guides now add 5 million to the local economy. The New Times story I mentioned spotlighted a nonprofit called Boone's Ridge. It's a nature reserve. The reserve is being built on reclaimed mine land, and its owners are hoping to attract 1 million annual visitors and generate 150 million per year. The biggest selling point is a chance to spot an elk. If there were that type of money in guiding elk when I was doing it, uh, I wouldn't be here right now. Moving on to the Raptor desk. Earlier this month, officials confirmed that the California condors had returned to Sequoia National Park for the first time in 50 years, which is huge news. And not just because this bird has an almost 10-foot wingspan, you know, which is huge. The California condor is a big vulture. It ranks among the world's largest flying birds, and it is the largest in North America. Adults weigh about 24 pounds, and again, can have a 10-foot wingspan. A big bald eagle, in comparison, has a 7.5-foot wingspan and weighs about 14 pounds. So we're talking about a really massive bird here. The only living bird species that has a wider wingspan than the California condor is the wandering albatross, which hangs out near Australia. The wandering albatross travels almost 75,000 miles a year. Adult wingspan can be as large as 12 feet tip to tip, and that bird weighs 24 pounds as an adult. You may find it interesting that a difference of about 2 feet in wingspan, which is a lot, still supports roughly the same amount of weight. Now, if you're trying to picture what the condor looks like, imagine a huge black vulture with a bright orange head. They also have big patches of white, almost like uh, Rorschach ink blots under their wings. The California condor, as the name implies, is native to California, as well as to Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico. The Lewis and Clark expedition even killed one of the birds near the mouth of the Columbia River in what is now Washington State. 
The expedition even accurately guessed that the bird was the largest flying species in North America. Here's why news about Sequoia National Park is relevant. The condor suffered a major die-off in the 20th century, owing to poaching, habitat destruction, poisoning of uh, several different types, including lead poisoning. Scientists believe that lead ammo specifically was to blame, not so much from folks shooting them, although that did occur, but the birds are scavengers and they eat gut piles. Gut piles from hunter kills contain lead. We've covered this many, many, many times. The reason we can eat lead to some degree and have it pass through our body is because the pH level, the amount of acid we have in our guts, is nowhere near as strong as the bird guts, and the bird guts can break that lead down and absorb it into the blood in a really short amount of time. If you recall, about this time, bald eagles experienced a similar die-off by eating DDT-laced fish. Some of the original bills to ban or restrict lead ammo for hunting purposes were because of the California condor, which was somewhat controversial at the time, and I'm sure still is to some of you at home. At any rate, by 1985, there were only nine wild condors left in the world, and about 18 in captivity. In other words, they were functionally extinct. Over the next two years, the remaining wild condors were captured and taken to zoos. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service then launched an extensive captive breeding program, spending some $25 million to save the giant vulture. Within nine years, the captive condors had produced more than 100 eggs, which, you know, shouldn't be that surprising, considering you don't fly around all day looking for dead stuff, you don't have a whole lot of options uh, how you're going to spend your time. In January of 1992, two California condors were released into the wild, kickstarting a massive reintroduction effort. As of 2019, California had about 200 wild California condors. There are now believed to be about 337 birds in the wild. Back to Sequoia National Park. The fact that four California condors showed up in Sequoia this spring further testifies the reintroduction success. And it's just kind of a, uh, excuse the expression, another feather in our conservation cap. I'm excited to see condors continue to expand back in their historic range. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks for listening. As per usual, if I'm missing anything or you just want to let me know what's happening in your neck of the woods, please get a hold of me at askcal at themeateater.com. That's A-S-K-C-A-L at TheMeatEater.com. If you're loving the Week in Review, thank you, and please tell a friend. Also, this week, I'd like to say a special thanks to J.R. Sullivan for helping me with a little bit of research. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.